Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 32 of The Photo Show. So, Kai, we're 32. That means we made it out of our 20s. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and and also it means, you know, we're moving out of mom's basement. So (laughs) we'll... uh, Yeah, that's true. Hopefully. Yeah, we mentioned it uh, last time. You know, we'll be moving into the uh, School of Visual Arts Theater under the uh, umbrella of Charles Traub's MFA Photography Video-Related Media Program. And we're just going to have to come up with a good tagline for that because that's a long name it certainly is yeah much longer than the photo show so we'll we'll have to work on that yeah we'll figure that out so today's guest on the show is richard bram we recorded a few weeks ago yeah richard's great and um he's also and somewhat related to our uh, conversation we had with joe aguirre uh, a couple weeks before that those guys are all uh, related to each other and their online presence and the way they support each other in this uh, new world of uh, street photography as people like identifying themselves as uh, this nouveau street photography, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, he's part of a collective with Matt Stewart. And he was, um, I think he said he was the fifth member. He was an early invitee to In Public, um, which is, I think, in-public.com. Uh, a street photography collective. Yeah, and they're still very active. I just saw something, I think, on Facebook last week where one of their latest members is getting a show somewhere and they, you know, are all supporting each other. And so that's nice. It's, you know, we off, we often get um, uh, visitors to the photo office at Columbia talking about graduate school and ways of building community. And uh, I find it interesting to see these guys who are for the most part not going to graduate school and uh, finding a way to meet each other and support each other through social media, through online, through meeting up in cities when they arrive there. And uh, Richard, who uh, you'll learn was is just about to move uh, to London, um, has been back and forth and you know they have connections worldwide. so it's 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 fascinating in that way. Yeah, we've been we've been hearing that a lot with these collectives and and sharing photography through social media. Um, the other thing about Richard is he had just published his book, Richard Brams New York, uh, which we got a, a nice preview uh, look at while we were uh, at his incredible apartment, which uh, he, he no longer lives in, <laughs> in uh, Lower yeah. New York. Yeah, and he uh, since the time of this recording, um, he had a couple of different events for the book, including. A lecture he gave at Photoville. For those of you who don't know it, uh, Photoville is an event that uh, takes place down in near Dumbo, underneath the Manhattan Bridge in that general area. And they set up uh, this temporary space with uh, shipping containers, and there's lectures and exhibitions. And a uh, future guest coming up, Yola Monikov Stockton, was also doing an event down there at Photoville. So, again, talking about how these self-organized collectives and other things are finding ways to be outside of the gallery museum world and still talking about photography. Yeah, I think I I shared that event on our Facebook account as well uh, because we knew this episode would come out after that. So, um, you know, speaking of book launches, (laughs) I would be remiss if I did not uh, plug on October 28th of this month at Affirmation Arts on 37th Street in Manhattan is the SPQR Editions book launch of their first five books, uh, one of which happens to be Your Humble Narrators. <laughs> and uh, if you are in town or around, this is your first opportunity to see the books, and the they won't be for sale on Amazon or online until a couple weeks after that. So 
if you want to get your hands on one, they're just $30 for each book or $125 for all five. Yeah, and I'm going to be there. Uh, in fact, we're um, we're going to be not not a recording an episode, but we'll be recording a, a, a panel of uh, Susan Kismarek and Thomas Roma uh, speaking about book publishing. And you'll be there, of course, and, and you know all the uh, authors of the other four books will be there. So it, I think it's going to be a real party, a real book launch. Absolutely. And I don't know if this, yeah, this will come out in time to also mention that one of the other photographers, Yoav Horesh, who currently lives in Israel and you don't get to see as often, is going to be presenting work at Patrice Helmar's uh, Marble Hill Camera and Supper Club coming up in a week or two, I think next weekend. Yeah, a week from yesterday. So that's October 8th. Great. All right, everyone. Well, enjoy the episode with Richard Bram and we'll talk soon. In downtown New York, did, did at the actually, palatial Bramishon House. It is palatial and quite beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Did you actually do radio? I mean, were, no, uh, on the radio? No. Well, I've, I, I've done, back in Kentucky, I did a lot of stuff with a public radio station. And uh, I would, you know, I'd be on during Pledge Week. And then I've done a lot of interviews over, you know, over many years. So I'm kind of used to it. Mm. Also, I come from a theatrical family. My mother's an oh. actress. My father and dad did, you know, would do amateur theater when we were growing up. I've been on stage. Uh-huh. So yeah. uh, I've helped give amateur theater the reputation it has. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I'm a photographer. Um, yeah, so I know how it works. <laughs> That's all. Enunciation. Right. And my mother was a drama major, so I wasn't allowed to make grammatical errors, spelling errors, Ooh, uh, and was wow. taught that good posture and good diction will get you through a lot. Sure. And she was right. Yes. Yeah, I bet. So, <laughs> cheers. Have some coffee. It'll, it'll help you. Thank you. Ah. That, the mug comes from a show I had with a guy named John Nation, and so Bram Nation just became a great nice. little joke. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. <laughs> well, we're actually catching you. Sort of. You were just uh, uh, looking at your walls, talking about holes you have to patch and things you have to take down and things you have to pack, because you're on your way back to London. Um, yeah, we uh, we moved. My wife and I moved here from London in 2008, uh, and. After eight years, she's taken retirement and is moved ahead of me to London, uh, where she is now into our new apartment in our old neighborhood. And I'm preparing to start knocking all this stuff down, pack it up, and get it ready to ship. Wow. And the, our listeners can't see, but there's a lot of stuff to be packed up. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, this is not the cool minimalist New York white uh, decorator yeah. magazine. This is a maximalist house. Yeah. Yeah. There's art covering everything, <laughs> bright colors on the walls, right. lots of stuff. Yeah, but even, it's cool stuff. There's but, even like a little nook over here by the kitchen, and I saw even inside the little nook part, there was some art stuck up in there. Yeah. So it's like, yes. But yeah. I just want to thank you for your offer to let us record here until you actually sell the place, which is fantastic. Sure. I know I'll be seeing you at least five times in the next few weeks with yeah. all of your clients. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting ready to set up Podcast Studios Incorporated. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's yeah. great. So... Um, 
you said your wife retired, moved back ahead of you. Right. And you're from London originally? No, actually, I was born in Philly, and oh. I grew up in Ohio, Utah, and Arizona. Uh, my lackluster work career after college and grad school took me to Texas and then Pennsylvania, briefly to New York, and then Louisville, Kentucky, where I stopped rolling for a good period of time. And then when the last real job, as it were, uh, <laughs> ended, uh, I did something insane and decided to become a photographer armed with ignorance and courage. <laughs> what, what, what were you doing those years before? Uh, I have a master's in international business from the Thunderbird School. Uh, I was a glorified export clerk with a fancy title, but it was essentially export documentation. Did that for a couple of firms, then I was on the dole for a while. I did a little theatrical production on a CETA job in the 70s, We, for those of you who remember that interesting program. Uh, then I became a clothing salesman for Wrangler Children's Wear, wow. which had me briefly in New York for what we laughingly called training, and then sent me on tour. Uh, and then I was uh, sent to Louisville, Kentucky, where I had never been, and I fell in love with the place. And when, uh, after traveling Kentucky and Indiana for three and a half years, that ended, uh, and then it was like, well, what do I do now? It's like, I've failed several times. It hurts, but they don't shoot you. Hmm. But what do I actually like to do? Hmm. And I was a hobbyist. I was a, you know, a happy snapper, if you will. Uh, I'd never worked in a dark room. I'd never made a black and white print, uh, but I'd like to take pictures. I thought, I like taking pictures. And, with, and I'd met a bunch of photographers in Kentucky uh, through a multimedia production that was being made, and I got some encouragement. Uh, from them, and I said, okay, I'll be a photographer, <laughs> and um, had no idea what I was getting into. And this I, is while you're still working for Wrangler? Or no, no I, was, I was on unemployment again. Right, okay. I was on the dole, but I, for the first time, I used that period. I went to the library, and I start, went to the 779 section hmm. and started pouring through it. I didn't read everything, but I probably pulled almost every single book in the Louisville Free Public Library's photo collection off the shelf and looked at it once. Right. And by osmosis and then things that spoke to me, I read. Uh, I went to the local rental darkroom and took a course in how to process black and white film and make a print because I'd never done it. What year is this? This is 1984. Okay. So th half my life ago. You're about... I'm um, 64. Yeah, so you were 32, yeah. I was 32. Yeah. Right. And, um, and this is... It was a decent library, I'm guessing. Too. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a very fine library system. Yeah. And, be, and I met someone there who actually hooked me up with a library because they needed they had a newsletter. They, could, they couldn't pay very much, but uh, they had me as their, uh, as their photographer. Mm -hmm. And it was fair because they didn't pay much and I wasn't very good. So, but <laughs> a perfect it all exchange. improved. A yeah. perfect exchange. <laughs> yeah. um, but Louisville was a good place for that because it's a small town. And inexpensive to live in, which was important because it because I was you know it was the starving period. Hmm. But for the first time in my life, I found something I was willing to uh, be hungry because I wanted to do this. You wanted to make the change. I wanted to yeah, and I think I you, just poured myself into it. Yeah, yeah. I think you told me on a previous occasion that you wound up moving into this building right that had already had. that was quite a bit later. Oh, okay, but, yeah. Well, I don't um, want to get ahead of your story. Yeah, um, so. Anyway, so I became a public relations photographer, 
because uh, that's essentially what the library thing was. And then they'd have little cocktail party receptions and things mm. that you photograph for the patrons. And in a, it, it's the same in New York. It's a bigger scale. But the patrons of the boards of the cultural organizations are the same people. Right. You know, with some, not completely, but there's a lot of overlap. So I began to meet all the patrons of the arts and the cultural organizations because I'd be taking their pictures. And my business experience taught me how to dress right for the occasion, mm. which is important. Again, it's theater. You have to wear the right costume for the role. Right. And meet one person. You Then they say, oh, you know, the, the, I'm doing something with the orchestra. They need a photographer for this. And then I start doing things for the orchestra. Uh, and then that leads you to someone else and also led me into photographing classical musicians, which is something I deeply, deeply love, mm. uh, which is the other thing I do. Of course, it's very different pre-digital because you see the event photographers out these days and like I'd say half the time they're looking at the back of their screen to make sure they got what they need. But there's a little bit slightly more anxiety when you were doing it. Oh, that hell of a lot more yeah, anxiety. Yeah, yeah, there's no chimping. You're using light, <laughs> you're using flash, you're doing indoor stuff, people are moving around. And you're learning how to use a flash in a nice way. Right. And you've got to not flatter to, everybody. Not to yeah. blind people, too, and all oh, kinds yeah. of things. Because it's tricky. Yeah, yeah, I was doing, I was actually, yeah. it's so funny, I was photo doing PR photography at about the same time in the late 80s. Right. But I was doing it for the School of Visual Arts. And okay. so my contacts were all through the Art Directors Club and things like that. Wow. And, but it was very much more a commercial field but the, i mean I, I i think i mentioned this before the the great thing about those times were it, it was okay the, for, for the photographer to chat and talk with people and even visit the open bar and get fed and all those things yeah and it was a lot of fun and there's this sort of it's changed a bit now the the photographer is not supposed to you know, participate invisible, right invisible, right, right. <laughs> i mean my approach was to try to be invisible i i, I hated having to line people up so they stood there with drinks yes, in their hands yes. but we do that but yeah and also again it was a small town and eventually you you're on a first name basis because they always see you right but then it led to the corporate jobs began to appear but the big break it started out with music photography uh because Louisville had a free bluegrass festival. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1984, I went and photographed, took a bunch of pictures at the Kentucky Fried Chicken Bluegrass Festival mm -hmm. and took them in to the woman at KFC and said, oh, would you please, would you like to see my pictures? She says, yeah, I'll look at them. I said, well, we have two photographers, John Nation and John Beckman, and they did it for us, so we don't need any. Uh, but I said, well, of course, they're good, but here's my card if one of them decides not to do it, um, you know, call me. And lo and behold, 1985, a year later, uh, one of the guys dropped out. And I started working with uh, John Nation on the Bluegrass Festival, and we worked well together. And that was my first big public event gig, uh, which led to a lot of other big public event gigs. Um, and we worked well together. The pictures were good. And later that year, the Kentucky Derby Festival called John, who was probably one of the two or three most prominent photographers in the whole region, to do, the, to do all our photography. He looked at the shot list and went, I need three people for this. So he called another man he'd worked with, and he called me. Nice. And that was my big break. Mm -hmm. And I became one of the three photographers for the Kentucky Derby Festival. 
75 events before the horse race, <laughs> 75 to 100 events, all of which needed to be photographed, all of which had one or two corporate sponsors. Wow. So therefore... A lot of coverage. A lot of coverage, and every corporation in town sees you down front working, and then they see all these pretty pictures. They may not have a tagline on them, but they, they you're associated with all of them. So then when I call, I call on them uh, with my little portfolio and... Oh, please hire me. I say, oh, Richard, come on in. Yeah. You know, I don't need to see this stuff. I know what you do. But we use John. We use Pat. We use Sheila. I say, yeah, but, you know, they're good people, but they're busy. And sometimes you can't get hold of them. Here's my card. Call me, you know, as a, as a backup. And eventually you get called by enough people as a number two. You're busy all the time. Hmm. And that's how I build a career. A, as a working photographer. And, and is that also where the After My Bridge? Uh, yes, pro- exactly. The After My Bridge been, series, yeah. you know, at first, you know, I got to go to the warm ups on the, on the track. Uh, and I wanted to duplicate, you know, the My Bridge thing, but it was dark. It's before dawn. And so it just, the whole After My Bridge series grew out of looking at a contact sheet because I didn't, I didn't even conceive of it. I'm not very conceptual. Uh, but then I looked at the contact sheet and I saw this strip that looked like an expressionist Mybridge. I went, well, duh. <laughs> and then for the next several years, because I only did it a couple of weeks a year, uh, went and photographed and did all these motion sequences of horses. Oh, so and you were aware of Mybridge at the time I mean, oh, from yeah. the library. Yeah, from, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Your, that's your education in photography for the most part. Yeah. yeah. So who were your big influences after all that time in the library? And you said you met a few photographers as well. Well, I had the good luck to learn from a lot of really fine photographers. In those days, the Courier Journal had a Pulitzer Prize-winning photo staff when it was an, an independent liberal newspaper before they got bought out by Gannett, mm. and they were very proud of their photo department and. Uh, so I got to watch these guys working. Uh, had a few other friends who were very kind and generous with their advice and time, mm-hmm. and we became friends. And But from the library, I just started reading the history of photography, and I think like a lot of young photographers, what spoke to me, especially because I was out working in real life, were, of course, Cartes, Cartier-Bresson, uh, the classics uh, of that sort. And I... I was heavily influenced by that for a long time. And a lot of my earliest stuff, the pretty pictures, uh, have that feel to them. But then, and interesting, this is a funny story because it became really important for me later. I remember when I first pulled the Gary Winogrand books off the shelf and looked through them, I was horrified. <laughs> this is horrible. I, God, I was starving. I was really thin. And, uh, and it was like, I want to make everything look really nice. That was what I was... needed to do that was the goal and then here were these horrible brilliant horrible pictures and i didn't read the intro because i'm lazy and uh didn't realize that he was on a guggenheim grant said who would have paid him for this as a public relations photographer to take these pictures well they weren't Mm. but access was a lot easier in those days i think you just show up well, Show yeah, up in a tie. You can get all the press credentials when you're on your Guggenheim. So yeah, exactly. Helps a little bit. But you bet. So. And, and and you know when he was shooting, it was much easier. Yeah. And um, 
But then, you know, after doing public relations photography for a few years, there's only so much sweetness you can take before you, you know, go into a diabetic coma. <laughs> and you begin to look, first you begin to see them, then you begin to take the pictures of the uncomfortable moments, the ones that really are not what your client wants to see. But I put them aside and don't show them to the client because I still need to get paid and I want to get hired again. But that became the more interesting pictures. And I realized these will have a lot more legs and a much longer lifetime than men in suits giving each other plaques and cutting ribbons and standing there with drinks in their hands. Uh, well, that's one of my yeah. questions was going to be during this time as you're hustling and finding ways mm -hmm. to get hired as a professional photographer, what what were you doing? Were you taking pictures for yourself, you know, like that were your own projects or things that were unrelated to that? I mean, or were you just, just as I, anything, so busy doing the other stuff? Yeah. I was just as busy as I could be doing the other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been really a project photographer. I mean, I did some portraits. Uh, I, I, became, I started working with the orchestra itself, and I spent a lot of time doing classical musicians. Uh, and then pop musicians and became worked with the Kentucky Center for the Arts. But mostly the, the personal stuff would just be what I'd come upon as I walked around town. Okay, I guess that's what I meant yeah, a little bit. So I guess, you, yeah, you weren't just, just taking the gear out when you were going to a gig. No, you, I, don't, I pretty much always had a camera with me. You know, I began to make it the religious obligation of, of having this, this object on my shoulder. And but taking ambient pictures, there wasn't a lot that was really very good in that period because I wasn't really focused on what we now call street photography. It was just whatever interested me or whatever caught my eye as I was walking around. Uh, that all pretty much came later. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't know. mean to derail your narrative. No, that's all right. Like, the narrative can go on forever. Yeah, yeah, I get, but I was trying I get to, lost in stories. Yeah, I was just trying to understand, you know, yeah. that sounds like you were, you were really busy. Yeah, I, 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 and to, after a while I became as busy as a one-man shop could be. So then what, what brings you out of Louisville? Well, that happened a lot later. Um, by this point, I've been doing the Derby Festival for 12 years. I knew everybody in town from, you know, I knew the governor. I'd met the governor of the state. I knew the mayor. I knew city councilmen. I also knew the security guard at the Kentucky Center for the Arts, who is more important than all of them because he's the guy <laughs> who lets you in. The gatekeepers are actually the most important people everywhere. But, Very true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then one day in... As some, you know, busy guy, I, I lived in the loft, which had been a photo school. You referred to that earlier. Yeah. Uh, or maybe you should just Okay, give I'm going to back up a little bit. Yeah, let's let's go. I've been living in an, an apartment in an older neighborhood in Louisville, a uh, two-bedroom apartment. The second bedroom was the dark room. Didn't have any water, so I'd work at night when I could carry the stuff over to the kitchen sink to wash it. Doing lots and lots of black and white, because I never did learn to do color chemical printing ever um, plus I didn't have oh, yeah. temperature we'll, controls we'll or come back to stuff. that yeah yeah anyway enough on. of that yeah, junk yeah. anyway <laughs> um, and there was a fire in the building and so I was suddenly out uh, you know got to find a place to live and at that moment I'd known about this because some friends had lived there there had been a photo school in Louisville called the Center for, for Photographic Studies, a very, very fine photo school. I mean, everybody came and spoke there in the day. I mean, Minor White and Ansel Adams and Charles Traub and all. It's another thing that contributed to the photographic quality of the community in Louisville, Kentucky. Interesting. It was part of that, that, that Chicago group, the, that Midwest kind of yeah, group yeah, of photographers. Yeah. Right. And it was run by C.J. Pressma, 
who uh, is still a very good friend and gave me some an interesting piece of advice, and I told him I wanted to be a photographer, but in a minute. So anyway, uh, the school had gone under in 1979, uh, but they had this loft space in a cast iron warehouse in downtown Louisville, like a Soho building, and it had been fitted out with gallery space in the front, offices and a big domed classroom in the middle, and another gallery space, room for slideshow and slide presentations. Ain't no digital yet, kids. <laughs> um, dark rooms on the ground floor, big communal dark rooms. And it had, you know, the school was gone. Somebody put a bathtub in and turned it into a residence. And at that moment in 1991, it was for rent. For And so I grabbed it. And suddenly I found myself with 3,200 square feet for $250 a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Okay. Oh, those are Brooklyn oh, prices, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Come on. Right. This was 1991, and it had no air conditioning and oh, was okay. bitter cold in the winter because it had grossly inadequate and expensive heat. But I was there for four years, hmm. and it was great. I had a downtown studio. And it was wonderful period. And then, of course, it was bought by some lawyers, and they tossed all the artists out and, and uh, renovated and made it boring, <laughs> but clean. And but, well insulated. And, so well, yeah. and eventually well insulated. Oh, but it, everybody's it, so worried about code. Yeah, yeah, I tell you. Just because that back wall was standing up by habit, you yeah. know, <laughs> as the mortar turned to sand. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, but that was, that was, you know, a great moment. And it was really one of those brief periods in every photographer's life where you have something special. Uh, and so and I, at that I, point, you were bringing, rather would, than going out and photographing right, people I mean, for events, you're bringing people into I could the bring studio. I the studio because I did a lot of portraits and headshots for actors. And musicians. Musicians, yeah. anybody. And it was on Main Street in Louisville, all the cultural organizations were within a few blocks of each other. It was sort of the Main Street Mafia. So I could walk two blocks at the Kentucky Center, another block to the Equity Company. Uh, the other way was the offices of the opera. Uh, and I worked with all these people. And they could come to you. And they could come to me. Right. Exactly. And it was great fun. I mean, if, if First National needed a bunch of people in the accounting department, we'd just schedule them in. And they'd, they needed, it was like a cigarette break. You know, they could all walk down the street, come into the loft, sit down on the chair, bang, 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 next. Right. And it was, it was convenient for everybody. So it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a good period, um, and that, and I had a busy commercial practice, you know, doing a little bit of everything. Uh, I always said, no wedding, no children, no dogs, but I've done all of them. <laughs> you know, we've all done. We've some all of that. done it, haven't we? <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, so that's where we are. And then one day in 1996, I'm living in a house in a, a neighborhood after uh, we got tossed out. I found an, an inexpensive house. I was earning enough that I could, I could get one. And I went to this restaurant that I'd always been going into. And I sat down. It was crowded on a Saturday. I sat down at the counter. There were two seats open. At the same moment, this really nice redheaded woman sat down next to me. We nodded and smiled, but had never seen each other. And the waitress, though, saw two regulars who sit down together and figured they knew each other <laughs> and said, hi, what do you guys have? And that's how I was introduced to the woman who became my wife. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. That was 20 years ago last month. Oh, congratulations. And so we carried on this crazy courtship. She was on her way to London when we met because she'd taken a job there. And I had to make up my mind. 
What do I do? Louisville, London. <laughs> they both start with L. They both start with L. <laughs> they both start with L-O. Yeah. And there's this wonderful person over there. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it took a few months, but we were... Now, did you tell her you were going to stalk her and go with her? Or? Uh, no, we both knew it. We both okay. knew it. It was like, you know, I was... We both just knew. And crazy courtship, really fast. Uh, engaged in December, married in February. And then I moved out in uh, July. I finally was able to clear up everything, do one more Kentucky Derby, pay everything off, sell the house, sell the car, clear out. And moved to London in 97, hmm. in the summer of 97. And I was there for, uh, well, 11 years. So you're and having like a, a bit of a repeat right now. This is the first time in my life I've moved back to someplace. Yeah. But also she went ahead, right? She went ahead. And exactly. Like, here you are packing things up and getting ready to. Here we are again. again. Exactly, yeah. Kai. I think, yeah, I think that says it. It's, it's a weird form of deja vu. I'll yeah. tell you that. Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. And what was she doing over there? What was the job uh, she's she in had? finance. She's an okay. uh, in, uh, investment manager in for various firms. Okay, but now retired. So it was it was a real interesting transition. And and she's British? No, she, uh, European, German, and Swedish. Okay, uh, and but never lived in either Germany or Sweden. Grew up all over the world, and uh, ended up in the States when she was sixteen, and uh, stayed there until well, she moved out. And uh, that's how you ended up. In that's London. how I ended up in London. Right. And that's why I'm going back. Thank right. you. Thank you. Because I'm before I stop me before I ramble again. <laughs> no. So you now you're in London, but I'm going to guess if she's working in finance, you you weren't like stressed to like show up in London and suddenly have to be making a lot of money to support yourself. Or Well, yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't have left. Right. Um, it, I was lucky. She was very supportive is very supportive and believed in me as a photographer uh, and and as I pursued the personal work. Did some public relations work there too, but not anywhere on the same scale and intensity that I did before. Were you able to meet photographers there? Yes, eventually. It took a long time because, you know, here... It's not Louisville. It's not Louisville. <laughs> this is London, much bigger. I didn't know where to go, what so, to so do. So what year are we talking about now? 97. Okay. 97, 98. And so what's the photo scene like in London? Very big. Very big. I mean, it's another capital of photography. But it's not... It's just, it's different. I, I It's all I can say. But I was sort of adrift for a few years. I, I mean, I was... How did I come to grips with this new place? I walked and took pictures. Hmm. And I began to... Become, and you had to learn the language. Well, yeah, I did. Chips, because, trunk, uh, the boot of the car, you know. Uh, dodgy. Yeah. Uh, well, that went off like a damp squib. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, all sorts of... The differences are more real than apparent, right. as an American ambassador said. Mm. Um, a lot of fundamental cultural assumptions are very different. Mm. And it's it's... Because we speak a similar language, we assume that things are the same. But they're not. It's, it's, it's as different as moving to, say, Germany or Italy or Sweden. But because of the language, you don't automatically assume right. the differences that are sense. under the sea, under yeah. the surface. And when you go visit, it's fun. But when you live there, it's different. Mm. But I fell in love with the place. I walked. I made pictures. Um, 
I got into a, uh, a small gallery with my what was then becoming my real street photographs, even though the term wasn't being used that much at that point. And in 2001, one of the first three members of In Public, the street photography collective, saw some of my work, as, just as it was forming, uh, saw some of my work in this gallery because he'd gone in to show them his work and said, oh, have you, and they, they looked at him and said, oh, have you seen the work of Richard Bram? And showed it to him. And then I met David Gibson, Nick Turpin, and Matt Stewart, who became very close friends. I became one of, like the fifth member of In Public, and we were the first street photography collective. And I say without, I think I can say this fair, fairly, that we helped kickstart the great revival of street photography as a thing to do. Now there's, now it's everywhere. There's lots of collectives. It's, the genre has exploded over the last 15 years. Yeah, we were just had a conversation with Joe Aguirre, who I, yeah. I know you know as yeah. well, and he was in a another collective. With name, Kramer. Yeah, yeah. Whose name I just forgot. Uh, burn My Eye. <laughs> yeah. Burn My Eye. Exactly. Right. Burn My Eye. And, and also very, very good. But at this time... Uh, Kramer O'Neill, I should Yeah, Kramer O'Neill. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this time in the late 90s, uh, it's... And early, sorry, early 2000s even, it's not... Uh, people aren't going online to see pictures as much. so the, It wasn't so, anywhere. Yeah, so this collective was much more centered around showing work in galleries or no, just uh, showing our work to each on other. the web, to each other, yeah. and getting it out there. When Nick, when Nick Turpin founded it, you know, at that time, if you wanted to research street photography and look for pictures on the web, I mean, Flickr wasn't there. Right. There wasn't any. There wasn't any. Unless it was uh, a gallery representation of old dead photographers. Yeah, I uh, guess the book. I mean, the book be, Bystander came out and later, later, in like two thousand five, yeah. maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, so we again, it was like, and plus, we took the the nervy step, frankly, of throwing down a gauntlet, and saying, "This is what street photography is," trying to define it. Mm-hmm. Which is a little nervy because it's a broad, it's a pretty broad church. But um, at the time, that was a radical thing to do. And then there was a place for it on the web, and it wasn't there before. Now it's everywhere. Hmm. But time has passed. Somebody had to start it. There was, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Was in public all British or people living it's, in? Well, it started in, in London, and then there was an early member who was there for a little while. It was a guy named Ludovic Fremo in Canada. And then he just stopped shooting. I think he went off to do other things. It was English. It was pretty much the English-speaking world. So there was Trent Park and uh, his wife Narelle Audio were early members down in Australia. Down in Australia, then Jesse Marlowe, uh, people on this side. Uh, before I got here, it's not in my head right now. But now it's people all over the world. We mm-hmm. have. We just took a new member. Graciela uh, Magnoni has just joined us. How many people now? I think at the moment it's about sixteen, hmm. fifteen, sixteen, all over you know all over the place. How often would you say that you see each other in person? Rare, uh, well, rarely, because there's never been because it's not a commercial thing. It's it's more of a I don't want to call it a club, but it's a mutually agreed upon group that we rare, have almost never been all in the same place at the same time. You know, there are people, who else? We got Germany, somebody's in Singapore now. That's Graciela, she's living in Singapore at the moment. The West Coast, 
you got Blake Andrews here in New York. You got me and Gus Powell and Todd Gross. I'm going blank. This is not good. Oh, that's fine. Right. That yeah, anyway, can, I don't have to give you the roster. We can link anyway. to the, yeah, the yeah, site. To right. Public. Yeah, um, that's fine. But suddenly, but getting back to the narrative that we were talking, suddenly I had some people to hang out with, some photographers I knew. And we would, David and Nick and Matt and I would say, hey, I'm, I'm up on Oxford Street. Want to shoot? Oh, yeah, I'm nearby. Um, I'll see you in front of Selfridges in an hour. Let's just walk around and shoot and we'll go off to the pub. And that's the thing about the photographer, the group there. It was, you know, we're friends. And we'd hang out. We'd go to a pub, you know, say, well, you know, Thursday night, let's meet at uh, the Three Kings in Clark and Well, and we'll just have drinks and talk photography and tell each other's lies, I mean, uh, stories, and, uh, <laughs> you know, the usual. So it was great fun. Which mirrors the experiences you hear about in the 70s and 80s here in New York with, you know, Winogrand and uh, Papa George and, and Meyerowitz. Meyerowitz. That, yeah. That's that was the yeah. deal. Like they, I mean, Joel said he and Winogrand used to just, you know, meet at the coffee shop, have breakfast, go out and shoot and then meet up for lunch. Right. Yeah. That was the yeah. model or yeah. a model. I guess. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, and it's a darn good one, mm-hmm. actually. And I don't think that happens much anymore. No, no, I think it's very rare because, you know, photographers just see themselves as, you know, kind of lone wolves and out there doing it by themselves. And, uh, you know, these these collectives are, are interesting because they are they're kind of a cross between photo clubs in a, yeah. in a way. But also those the photo, the more royal photographic societies, of you know, at the early start of photography, where it was about people with shared ideas about what photography is. Right. Do you, did you guys ever talk about the relationship to where this came from, this idea came from? You know, I don't think we ever did. Mm. But I think it's, it's a really important point, Michael. I mean, it's the, the great institutions, especially in, the, in, you know, 120, 30, 40 years ago, were that. It was just uh, like-minded people, of a cer- especially in those days, of a certain means oh, would get together uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and discuss... Uh, and sh- compare notes and show each other their uh, things and, and talk about. Well, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried uh, hypothyroid? Hyperthyroid? Hyperthyroid of sulfate? Well, they probably all had hyperthyroid back then. And mercury poisoning and iodine poisoning. Yes. Daguerreotypes, anyone? But yeah, I think. And I think in many ways that's what a lot of this has become. And there, you know, there are groups that I never joined, but on Flickr, there's one called Hardcore Street Photography, where people go up and, you know, slash each other with ribbons and have big fights and, uh, you know, and, and uh, do all sorts of stuff where there's a lot of uh, ego and testosterone on display and some good pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I just never joined any of that. Right, right. And, of course, the beauty of it now being uh, on the Internet is you – it. It doesn't have to be someone of a certain means or race or ethnicity right. or, or origin in photography or anything like right. that. Right, yeah. exactly. I think that's exactly right. It is the word democratic is highly overused, but I think there is, there is a lot of that now. Anyone who has good pictures, doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, where you live, can get an audience. Right. I think, I think Joe Aguirre is uh, just one gripe was that uh, uh, gender could be a little more diverse. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely true. Uh, there, especially these days in street photography, there's an awful lot of aggression, which frankly tends to be really male and testosterone-fueled. I mean, the whole flash thing, 
is like you look at these and I say, these are a bunch of angry young men. <laughs> I mean, really, the pictures are okay, but mostly it's like heavy aggression. It's almost like an assault. Or yeah, something. I mean, to take a picture with a flash of someone in daylight, you have to recognize that it is an assault. You're banging somebody in the eyeballs. Hmm. You know, and, and Bruce Gilden may be the most imitate the early Bruce Gilden may be the most imitated photographer, but no one does it as well as he does. Hmm. I have mixed feelings about some of it, but it but it's damn good. Yeah, no, uh, there's no denying that. Yeah, uh, but it's aggressive. Whereas you take someone like Jeff Mermelstein, who's doing it just very quickly and quietly, and or me for that matter, most people don't know I even took a picture, hmm. even though I might could be standing next to them. I just think it's a different approach. But yes, in getting back to your point, there is an awful lot of it, and I there I wish there were a lot more women doing it because I because it's a different approach. There, there, it will be equally good, but it will be different, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm, I want to just I find these collectives interesting only yeah. because I, I, they seem it's like a I was off my radar for one thing, and yeah. also you know I think a lot of um, the reasons why. I'm in school. I, I teach at Columbia, so I could see all right. these grad students coming in. And mm -hmm. I remember when I was thinking of going to graduate school, part of the idea was community, right? Like, oh, you want to meet people right. that are like-minded. And But, of course, when uh, you know Michael and I went to Columbia, we went to that program, and it's a visual arts program, and the people there are hoping for something, I think, different. And uh, these collectives are maybe an alternate way of finding a community, a community of like-minded people. So I'm just curious about not just, I mean, it makes sense for you. You land in London, you find these people and everything comes together. Right. But uh, now in this day of like social media and people, friends on Facebook are following each right. other on uh, Twitter and Instagram and everything, there's got to be, there's something more when you're saying, okay, now we just, you just said we brought in a new member, right? So right. what what would you say being a member of, of one of these collectives is giving you beyond just being friends with someone on social well, media? Well, I think, I mean, each collective has its own way of looking at things. Uh, there's another one like Strangers, uh, Strange.rs, and there's another one, there's a couple in India now uh, and various other places. Uh, what it gives you is the collegiality. It gives you the discussion. I mean, in public, we have a private, uh, closed discussion board where we can post pictures and uh, critique each other and, you know, saying, yeah, well you're not working hard enough or that's really good or but not just not just at a boy or no but why what's missing and what are we not getting and the more comp the more detailed the critique that you that we miss because we're not in school where you can you know have your peers slash you and slash <laughs> you in person is really important especially for me when i was starting out and i mean the reason one of the reasons i switched to color is i began to be pushed by uh some of my friends that in public said you know bram do color <laughs> and i dabbled in it a little bit in 02 and then i shot some it, it really had to go i had to go to digital before i did it because then i could make my own prints yeah you meant you mentioned that the ability to have the control more control you know instead of uh trying to figure it out in someone's lab or something like that that that's, that actually allowed you to really start uh, thinking about color photography more seriously. Yeah, because, I mean, coming out of the chemical world uh, for decades, it's, uh, I think, of prints. What's it going to look like as a print? 
And I could never print my own color. And nothing ever looked quite right, no matter how good the print was, if I couldn't do it myself or work very, very closely with them. And the thing about the digital darkroom, you can do all the tiny tweaks that are a lot harder to do when you're doing the hand jive under an enlarger. Uh, and now I can do it myself <laughs> and make it look the way I want it to look. So I can bring push things up and, and push things down and bring things back up without altering because I'm a straight photographer. But I can make it look as beautiful or as harsh as I want it to look that only I will interpret. Right. I mean, yeah, outside sorry, of... No, no. Cliche. I mean, outside of the dye transfer process, yeah. you didn't have the, the range of, you know, correctiveness that black and white photographers did because I, I, right. I shot color film. Um, yeah. I still do, uh, since 1985. Wow. Right. Uh, so, and it, it's always been true. I mean, I was, I was very happy with the prints I was making, but when I started scanning and shooting digitally, I, I realized there was a, an incredible range that could be opened up, uh, using Photoshop and other tools and things like that, but that I didn't have in the darkroom. Right. Even if you don't think, I mean, to do really detailed things, I mean, like Gene Smith or Larry Clark and their gorgeous prints, uh, let's not talk about if they actually change something, but just to do really fine burning and dodging would take tiny mass or a paint or a, an artist brush with ferrous cyanide yes, on right. it, which is cyanide, and yes, it is poison, <laughs> right. to bleach tiny little areas to bring them up just a tiny bit. And now it's like, oh, Right. Dodge tool. <laughs> yeah, and I remember as delicate to, as you want. Trying yeah. to burn things in with a different filter pack because it yep. would burn a different color. That's it. <laughs> That's, right. That's it. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, so it sounds like this... That's what I was trying to get to. Oh, so you okay. guys have this, you have this discussion board. It's right. A real, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's a real community that's giving you yeah. feedback on your work, not just, you know, yeah, not just exactly. for social media likes and, you know, yeah. attaboys, I mean, as you said. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen this in interviews. You're not going to learn anything from attaboys and that hideous phrase, great capture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know. Uh, or great Excellent comp, not excellent. They don't use excellent. I think it's great. Always great yeah. composition. Or you really got the decisive moment there. <laughs> uh, uh, excuse me, my my gorge is rising. Yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah. Rough. right. That's rough. All right, we're old cynical guys. All right. that's who we are. Exactly. Um, but it's true. It, it's like I, we all use cliches, but we try not to. Sure. And I try and avoid them in my pictures too. But. Really, it was tool driven. So by the time when I moved back to New York, okay. I, I pretty much great. stayed. I was, just about I was to say, I eight years ago. Eight years ago, I stayed in black and white pretty much all the way through. Hmm. Um, but in '04, I bought my first digital camera because a client told me, you know, "Well, Richard, we don't need film and processing. Can't you? We just need JPEGs. Can't you just shoot it digitally?" <laughs> of course I can. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no uh, you know, of course yeah. I have it. No problem. <laughs> uh, and I had two weeks to go out buy a camera, learn how to use it, and so I was. You know, look professional, which I did. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, it was a Nikon D70. From then, I began to shoot digital color as opposed to color slides. And in the personal work, I really began to play with it right toward the end here, I mean, in London. When I moved to New York in 08, when uh, my wife's job transferred us back to the company headquarters here, at first it was continued to do black and white. We got here just in time for the financial crisis, so it was a pretty stressful year and a half, mm. pretty crazy. But I photographed in black and white. 
And then I just, I began to feel stale. I felt like I'm not making new pictures. I'm not doing anything that's, you know, really different from what I've been doing before. And that's a bad feeling. Like, how do you wake yourself up? How do you do something different? And I said, and then in 2010, Leica came out with the M9, which was their first really successful digital camera. Yeah, the, full the M8, frame. It, full frame. The M8 had come out earlier, but it had a lot of problems. It was a, uh, a B camera, not an A camera. And I never bought one because I got so much bad feedback from people I knew. So but the M9 came out, and pretty soon I began to hear good things from people I respected. And I went and bought one because I'm used to using a rangefinder on the streets because it's quiet, it's small, it doesn't look like a big honking DSLR, and I never felt completely comfortable, even with a prime lens on it, using a DSLR in the street. So I bought it, and it was like, wow, this works. These are pretty. And so I committed myself in 2010 to shooting all my personal work in color, just because it's so much harder. It's way more difficult to do well. There's just so much more that can go wrong in color. Mm. You know, you, you called it a uh, color was a distraction and, you know, where whereas uh, you might be able to concentrate on someone's face in black and white. All of a sudden you're looking at the clothes in color. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In black and white, you look at the faces yeah. in color, you look at the clothes. <laughs> uh, but that can ruin a picture. Mm. You know, I mean, here you are, you have something really intense going on right in front of you and everyone's being in New York. They're all wearing their proper, you know, nice, dark, dark. New York <laughs> black and gray colors <laughs> and in the background way in the back is somebody in a screaming red jacket <laughs> and your eye can't stop going to the red jacket so guess what that picture doesn't work because i'm not going to change the color you can only burn it down so far uh because that's how i am i mean someone else could change it to gray or do whatever i won't do it if that works for them fine i'm not going to do it mm -hmm. because it makes it harder but that's okay. It shouldn't be easy. Anything, nothing worthwhile is easy. <laughs> and so and I think that I finally I figured it out. You know, and uh, I like what I've done in the last five, six years. Mm -hmm. I think it's an entirely different body of work. It's, a different, it's the same way as, of looking at the world, but it just, it's a completely different thing in color. Yeah. Well, it you, really is. You break down... Things you've shot over the years in, mm -hmm. into, into project titles now, but was that yeah. a, an after idea? Was that an idea that came after a lot of the photography was done? The way yeah, it's broken down? Yeah, I think down? so. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not really a project photographer very often unless I either have an axe to grind <laughs> or someone really gives me something interesting or I might give a working title to something just to help cohere while I'm looking for the good images. Oh, yeah. In fact, you have uh, a number of things called sketches, I think, on yes. your website. Yeah. Um, yeah. But th that's usually travel photography. Because mm. I, you know, it's like there's the Oaxaca sketches, the Russia sketches, this one, that one, the other. That's just in sort of a way of like grouping them on the website in a coherent manner. Right. right. Well, this is a perfect transition to yeah. talking about coming back to New York, making this right. new work, shooting in a new way, and yeah. then this is culminating in something that's just happened, which is the publishing uh, of drum roll, please. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the publishing uh, of your book. Richard Bram. New, new York. York. Right. <laughs> Very clever. Which has just come out. Which has just come out. It's still in pre-orders. We'll be shipping... 
starting to formally ship very shortly, We're like the next a week or so. Stack of them right on your yeah, table a small right stack here. of the limited edition. Yes. Uh, yeah. The prints are all signed. Are I'm, those I'm for busy sale signing. right now? Yes, they are. <laughs> Thank you for asking, young man. Yes, one of these could be yours. Uh, look, we'll speak after the broadcast. <laughs> yeah, we. I was approached by David Carroll and Ashley Stoll, who had founded a press, Peanut Press, because they they liked the work and they and I uh, I was impressed by their first publication, uh, Ashley's book Charth Vader, and I was impressed by the production values as well as the quality of the of the book itself, and I thought, okay, I'll work with them, and I've been I've been thinking about it for two or three years, you know, wanting a book. And first it was, oh, all my good pictures. Well, and I, it just wasn't coming together. And uh, all your good pictures spanning decades. Ignoring, ignoring chronology, all color. I realized black and white and color don't mix to me well uh, at all. They fight with each other. I really do agree with that. So I I, I used the phrase, the tyranny of chronology in place. (laughs) But ultimately it's important. And putting all the good pictures together when it's not a retrospective of me when I'm 80, you know, call me in 16 years, we'll talk about it again. It just wasn't working. It just had nothing. And so I'd spoken to a really fine picture editor named Stella Kramer, and she helped me do sort of a first edit of, you know, everything. And then by the second or third time, we began to narrow it down to just New York and London. And that still wasn't holding together. So then I let it go fallow for a few months. Then another friend who was also a picture editor came over, uh, Regina Montfort, a friend of the late Christophe Auguste and mine. Uh, and Christophe was very encouraging too. Uh, he said, but, and he said, nope, Richard, it just has to be New York. They're not working, it's not gelling. And she was right. And so we worked for a while, and then I just, the sequencing, it didn't flow, it didn't have, it didn't have a narrative, it didn't, it was, it was like a bunch of musical phrases thrown in a blender, each phrase was good, but it wasn't a sonata. And so it sort of sat fallow for a year, and I made more pictures, I was still shooting, uh, the pictures in the book, the earliest are from 05, the latest are from 2015, December of 2015. Uh, so that was after I'd worked with uh, the two editors and I was able to get it down to about 80 pictures I ran, did some blurb dummies and you know all that kind of stuff and it just didn't seem right and then when David and Ashley approached me I said okay and David did the final edit I took 80 pictures over and we just sat down and went through them and then he did show me your 10 best Ten? <laughs> pick ten. <laughs> so I picked ten. All right. Give me ten more. I said, oh, okay. Oh, oh, I forgot this. I said, how come that wasn't your first ten? I said, you only asked me for ten. Um, but we got it down. We did that about five times and got 50 pictures. And then he went through the, re- the stuff that we hadn't used and put, took some out, put some in. Went back and forth, some of, the, some of which were my absolute favorites, but I realized, nope, they got to go. Mm-hmm. And then he went away with the, with the pictures, and, and about a week later, sent me pictures of the 51 
image edit hmm. that flowed, that worked, uh, that I'm really pleased with that I could not have done because I just was too close to the pictures. Uh, yeah, we had a, a similar conversation yeah. with Matt Stewart yeah. when he first you know, started putting a, a book together. It was. It was like, oh, these are my hits. These are my favorites. These are everyone. I want all of these in there. And then it, right. it didn't look like anything altogether. It didn't look like a book. It was a that's it. portfolio. It might be all that life can afford. Right. That's the title of Matt's book. <laughs> but it's not, you don't want all. Mm. You just want enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and then you really have to think about the sequence, one after the other. Exactly. Great. Exactly. So then now you had this edit and... Uh, do you want to talk about the experience of going on press? Well, it, that was amazing. Because um, you got to go so to So after Meridian, we got the right? edit, um, and then uh, worked with Joe Channon, who's a pre-press guy, a brilliant pre-press guy. He brought all, his, all the proofs of each image separately over, and then I went through them and made notes. And then next thing I knew, I'm going out to Providence, Rhode Island, to Meridian Press, which is one of the finest printing houses in the world. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they've been printing Lee Friedlander stuff forever. They print all sorts of exquisite books. Did you work with Danny Frank? No, I did not. I worked with another fellow. I'm sorry, names are escaping me completely. Yeah. Man, sorry. Um, but I met Danny Frank, who was really nice to talk to. Um, yeah, he's nice. He's a great guy. A great guy, indeed. And... Um, but we worked with a bunch of other guys. We were there all day. We got there at like 8.30 and left at about 8 o'clock. And we're tweaking the sheets as they came off each time. Like, up oh, too much ink here. Colors here. Looks cakey here. Looks chalky there. And between working with Joe and their people, all of whom are very, very good, we're moving cyan up, yellow down, uh, less black, more black, uh, too much ink overall, uh, that kind of thing, until it looked good. And then the sheets came off, and then a couple, few weeks later, I got my first book in my hand, and it was like, oh, it's magic. <laughs> it's so beautiful. <laughs> and it was a great experience. I mean, it's, when the stuff comes off the press, it's really great. I mean, it, it, it's a wonderful experience, the culmination of something I dreamed for a long time. And to have that uh, work so well is just pretty special because I'm very satisfied with it. I think it's a great representation of the New York years. And in a way, the timing couldn't be right. It's a say. summation. As I'm leaving, it's like this is the summary of this chapter of my photographic life in this book. And that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's really nice. And yeah. it's... You know, it just sort of it fits in the karmic wheel here. Yeah, perfectly. And so, uh, was it? Did you know from the very beginning that you were going to do a limited edition series? So you've got yeah. We just had to figure out how okay. the sequencing would work. Okay. Um, so you've got the red cover, which is the red cover is the main is the main book for fifty five dollars. www.peanutpressbooks.com. And then the blue cover. And the blue cover is the limited edition, which is a hundred. So it's eight hundred and ninety red. The total edition's a thousand, eight hundred and ninety red, a hundred blue, which come with a uh, C print of the cover image, not not a digital print, proper chemical print, uh, a digital C, a digital C, yeah, yeah. of the of the cover image, uh, Church and Day Streets of the, the the tourists and the businessmen and the other people looking right. uh, that's on the cover, uh, and then ten, what we laughingly call the white album, <laughs> which is. A white cover, 
which is a portfolio of 10 museum prints. Wow. Exhibition prints in a clamshell box with the book underneath. Mm. Uh, you know, in a formal, very formal you know, presentation. Nice. And is that something that Peanut those. Press does often? or, or uh, the, We decided to do it with this one. I mean, yeah. this is their third or fourth book. Okay. Uh, they also, at the same time they printed mine, they printed the work of a really nice man named Rami Narula, who lives in Bangkok, who did a, a gorgeous series in the Bangkok train station mm. uh, called Platform 10. It's a, another really lovely, lovely book of photographs. Very thematic. Mm, I bet. Uh, I've been on that platform, and it's just, <laughs> it's really an amazing place. <laughs> but he got better pictures than I did. And, uh, which is, you know, great. Some, lots of people get better pictures than, than <laughs> other people. It's always wonderful. But then there's, so that's that. Now that is, is that's for collectors, maybe a museum, if, a museum collection. That's $5,000 which is reasonable for 10 museum prints, you know, exhibition prints that you see in a gallery, plus the book. Uh, yeah. Where it, And the, the limited edition is 185 Again, all available on Peanut Breast. But the red edition is selling pretty well for pre-orders. And as soon as we start shipping, uh, I think, you know, it, it's going to go. Great. Great. So I'm just really pleased. Yes. Thank you. Yes, Thank you very much. And you ha you are yeah. uh, represented by um, four or five galleries, or a few, off and on, off and on. Yeah. Uh, no one in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, street photography. I hate to say this. Street photography. I sell work, but it's always a little more difficult because a little too close to reality. Uh, you don't see the commercial galleries with a lot of street photography, unless unless it's someone uh, who is already famous and or dead, preferably both. I mean, you go to APAD, you'll see street photography, but it's historic. But Gallery Hertz in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which was my first gallery, or my second gallery back there, they still show my work, and I still I sell a lot of work there. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have a show opening in there in three weeks of the work from the book. Wow. Uh, I mean, you'll, you'll be back for that? <laughs> no, I won't be able to go this time, yeah. which is to my great regret. But we recorded uh, sort of a preview, a uh, video preview, oh, nice. and um, I'm printing the, uh, I'm making the prints right now, and they'll have to be shipped out in a week uh, to Billy for uh, to get them ready for the wall, uh, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I just wish I could be there. There's just too much going on. Mm. I'll be giving a lecture uh, and a book signing here at Photoville on Sunday the 25th oh, okay. of September. Yeah, I will be here for that's that. That's what I was going to ask. Are there yeah. book events coming? Yeah, that's the first big book event. It will be available at Dashwood Books. Well, un uh, unfortunately, this, this yeah. episode will won't air by then. Right, but uh, that but happens. But you know, <laughs> but that's always fun. I mean, I I give lots of lectures, and it, it's fun to do the song and dance and uh, show pictures and make jokes. And uh, but it's also serious. So so, how is your life going to change in London? Drastically. <laughs> um, I mean, in a way, as I said earlier, you know, we're moving back. So I have friends there. I know the neighborhood. It, but you're going back as a different going, photographer. As a different photographer. I mean, the work I made there before was much more romantic than the work I've made since I've come to New York. Because for me, London, especially because of the way I moved there to be with my wife in this new place, in a new marriage, it was much more romantic. And also London is, to the surprise of Londoners when I say this, calmer, quieter, and cleaner than New York. New York is... So the work I've made here is harsher, more critical, more neurotic, uh, more crowded, which is what New York is. 
And so I think in London it will just be different. I don't, I can't tell you, you know, uh, but I'll continue to shoot. Uh, being there will help me with my uh, European gallery network because I'll be able to be back in touch regularly. Uh, the gallery Kosten in Mannheim, Germany has always been very supportive. Uh, and I've had four or five shows there. Friends I've shown in Mainz, Germany at, at various exhibitions in Frankfurt. Uh, I have friends in Italy and that may lead to things and in France. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. But you have to be there really. And when I'm that close, I'll be able to go back and forth and really, you know, get things going again. I've kept in contact with all my friends there, but not being there or not being in close proximity has always made it difficult. And uh, there we are. You know, I, I, yeah. I missed this when we were talking about when you got started. And I always like to ask people. So you, were, you started photography a bit later than, than most of our guests. Uh, but were your, were your parents still uh, both around? And what did they think of that, that switch in your career? That oh, major they were switch? horrified. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. Like, well, don't you think you need a job, dear? I said, I have a job. I'm a photographer. And I was like, look, Mom. <laughs> She's always, she was always the most hard-nosed. They're both, you know. But she was in the arts, too. Well, not really. But she was also a real estate agent. Ah, uh, okay. But it was, you know, they were depression. You got to have a job, you know. Um, in photography, is that a job? <laughs> no. Well, yes, it is a job. I said, look, I don't want, I was 32. I said, I don't want to get to be 40 or 50 and say, oh, I wish I had when I could have, but I didn't. I said, Mom, if I fail, they won't shoot me. I'll just feel bad. <laughs> I know what that's like. I've done that. But I have to give it a shot. And they, they ultimately became supportive as it, as it went along. Hmm. Nice. Um, but I don't think they ever quite believed it for a long time. Well, did, my did father's no longer with us, but my oh, mom okay. is. I sent a copy. The first person to get a copy of the book was my mom. Nice. I sent it off to her in Arizona. And she was just so thrilled. Oh, Gave nice. her bragging rights. And did she ever come here to see this beautiful place you live in? And yeah, she was here a few years ago. Life you've been ago. leading. Yeah, oh, she was here nice. a few years ago. She's, she's a New Yorker. Oh. Uh, you know, born and raised in, uh, in New York, uh, but left when she was young. Uh, now she's a little old lady mm -hmm. living in Arizona. <laughs> uh, 91. Wow. So, wow. That's great. But dad passed away a few years ago, but he was pleased. Nice. It was interesting when I, I'd show him work occasionally, both mine and some he got and some he didn't. And I remember showing him a couple of photo books and one he didn't like, but I, but then I, I put down Robert Frank's The Americans in front of him. He got that because he remembers that period and the smugness and what was going on because they were fairly liberal, certainly in their youth. And I wrote about this in Jason, uh, Jason Eskenazi that did that book, The Americans List, which was people yeah. Several hundred photographers writing about their favorite picture yeah, from nice, Robert Frank's The book. Americans. Yeah. And I took one that my dad also liked, which is the City Fathers of Hoboken. Mm -hmm. Look in their top hats looking <laughs> so smug and sure of yes. themselves. It's a brilliant, sharp mm -hmm. photograph. And I just love that picture. Mm -hmm. And he, he got that book. I mean, I grew up, dad always played with cameras. He was never really a good photographer at all, but he liked playing with cameras. So, I, you know, they were all, he was the, the designated family picture taker with his old Argus C3. So the first camera I ever played with was a rangefinder. Hmm. So that's why when I fought, bought my first beat-up used Leica, it felt comfortable in my hand because it's a rangefinder. 
but I still remember Mom saying on our family vacations in the West, Bob, while you're fiddling with that camera, the herd of buffalo is moving on. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually more appropriate today than ever. While you're looking through your phone, the world is passing you by. (laughs) I think so. Oh, the phone's ringing in the background. That's okay. That's all right. It'll ring a few moments. No, I don't. We'll just wait um, and continue talking while that goes on. It'll stop in a moment. (laughs) If it doesn't, I'll have to, you know, throw it in the floor. You know what? We we record in so many places. We're just used to uh, all kinds of things happening. (laughs) It's part of the charm of the podcast. Charm. Yes, that's what it is. It's charm. (laughs) It's charm. So, gosh, we've been all over the place. Yeah. Um, It's good. It's been great. I'll I'll say one one more thing, because I like to say this, is... (laughs) The book is 51 pictures edited down from probably 30,000 frames. Mm. You know, because in digital, you do shoot more because mm. it doesn't cost you anything every time you click the shutter. And you can also count files easily like Easily, that. yeah. I'm not, you, not, not going to go through and like start counting your yeah. contact sheets. <laughs> One, two. No, 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 no <laughs> screw that. Uh, but it, that. And the hardest part, I think, for anyone is editing. And the one thing that I think young photographers and would-be street photographers in general, people who are shooting a lot in everyday life, is how do you know what a good picture is? And that's the hardest skill to develop at all. And what you have to do is look at a million pictures and not yours. Yeah, but there's also this idea of when you were talking about the book, there's, there's a difference between whatever you think a good picture is and then a picture that's working for the purpose of this new thing the book right like you already said some of your favorite ones didn't make it into the book because they didn't fit same thing we talked about uh, with Matt Stewart so there's editing means a lot of different things depending on the context of what you're editing yeah. for. If you're editing for a show with an exhibition, you've got such a much wall space, whatever, you might make an right. edit based on that decision. Exactly. You know, so uh, looking at contact sheets or looking at your, uh, you know, in Lightroom or whatever to decide, you know, what's just a good picture versus a bad picture using your own criteria is one thing. But then yeah. when you're then doing it for another purpose, yeah. that's a, a different form of editing. And sometimes yeah. it could be useful to... Yeah, uh, reach out to somebody else to help. Oh, absolutely. With that process, absolutely. especially if you have an idea of what you're looking for. It's interesting uh, over the years because of my business experience. My wife and I could talk about what went on in her daily life, and she has a pretty good eye. And over the years, I've learned to let her help me look at pictures when I'm doing just rough. You know, Here's what I took. You know, this one's this interest you? Nah. Yeah, you're right. But you know, it it's. Because I have that little bit of feedback there mm. too, which is nice. Uh, you know, it's a bit of mutual. We've developed a mutual respect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That so you've way. Got layers, layers of feedback. layers of feedback. Right. Yeah. Layers <laughs> of feedback. And the other thing is, I st- I didn't study photography in school. I never took a photo course until I decided to be a photographer. I never worked in a darkroom, but I studied art history and West, especially Western art history, because well, I'm a man of you know Western culture. Um, and I love it. I still read it for pleasure. I'll still I go to art museums, not to take pictures of myself, but to just sit and stare at paintings. Hmm. Uh, we go to Italy a lot. And that's like living in an art museum. And having that stuff in the back of your head, that's where you absorb the fundamentals of composition and lighting and everything. I mean, no photographer knows any more than an old master. You know, they, those guys did it, and they did it slowly, and they had to work at it for a long time. And if you get that in your head, 
you'll internalize a sense of composition that works even when you're taking random pictures in crowds. It still matters. And I think that's one of the tools that's helped me edit a lot. I talk about it a lot in, uh, in lectures. Mm. Um, I'll show, a, I'll show a picture that I took that's a favorite and say, yeah, and this, this reminded me, I never think about it at the time I'm shooting, but when you're editing, I said, yeah, this reminded you of Hieronymus Bosch's torments, the tormentors of Christ. You know, and, that, and with that in your head, that helps you edit. Yeah, that becomes part of your subconscious process while you're out yeah. photographing. Because you describe in Photoville, yeah. uh, your photographs originate in the random chaos of the public space of the street, the ambient weirdness of everyday life. And yeah. when, when you're in that situation, if you're thinking about composition, it's just not going to happen. But no, if, it's, if, it's, it's, if it's entered into your subconscious already, then you know, you'll see that later and it'll, it'll show up later. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a photograph nails the last picture in the book. And there's this woman... And her hand, her fingers are pointed out with her thumb slightly separated against her body. But the way her fingers curve is really quite remarkable. And it's an unusual thing. And you see it in late medieval, early Renaissance painting, in the gestures of the significant characters in the painting. And that's something that I keyed in on when I was looking at, looking at that picture. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's why that one has been pulled out <laughs> from the mass. Nice. So I don't know what else. I'm, I'm beginning think, to get really no, boring no. now, guys. Richard, I'm so glad that we're <laughs> I'm so glad we were able to catch you a before you left the country, and b just as the book is going to be coming out. I mean, as people are listening to this, they can rush out and get a copy, right? Yeah. Okay. And, it's uh, a real pleasure. And uh, while you still yeah. have this apartment for us to meet in, it's thank you. Yes, thank, thank you, you very much, and Michael. Thank you too. It's, yeah. This is a pleasure. I'm oh, so great. glad we met up at uh, Columbia. Yes, a few weeks ago. Right. That was yeah. great. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, goodbye, everyone. Yeah, have a great day. Goodbye, time. and thanks for listening. And um, I'm going to say that one more time, dear friends, because <laughs> Richard Bram, New York, is available on peanutpressbooks.com. Buy it. Goodbye. <laughs> My cat needs food. <laughs> this, is, this is the picture that I was talking about. I can show you these. Uh, <laughs> we can't see them. Look at It's a hand. Look at that. Oh, of course. I mean, that's yeah. right out of the, the Renaissance, right? right? I mean, that's exactly. right out of, oh, yeah. And, and the way they're arranged oh, yeah. in the frame. Yeah. Again, completely uncut. This is the Annunciation. Yes. The angel's always on the left. Mary's in the middle, usually oh. reading. Right. But she, she often is making this gesture, baby, you're knocked up. Oh. Right. <laughs> but, it's, but it's even the, the expressions on their faces, they're in the middle of this mental conversation, yeah. right? I mean, that's... Yeah. That's, yeah, that's um, it. Where else is another, <laughs> another painting? Another one of my paintings. Uh...